0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRM podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: This is Gastronomica on Heritage Radio Network. This podcast is in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. I'm your host for today, Daniel Bender. I'd like to welcome listeners to this new season of Gastronomica. Over the next few weeks, we'll be talking to authors and writers and featuring pieces from our newest issue. This issue, volume 22.4, was unique for gastronomica and is a special issue on water. We drink water, we're made from water, we irrigate our crops with it, we buy it in bottles, we depend on it to provide home for fish and shellfish that we then eat, and today we learn how to smell it. But food scholars, writers, activists don't really think enough about water. This season also brings a sneak peek into our upcoming issue on authenticities and borderlands. I'm excited to begin this new season with Chanel Dupuis. Chanel is a PhD candidate in French and Francophone studies at Brown University. Her research focuses on smell, the senses, perception, and trauma in 20th century French and Francophone literature. She also studies the Amazon, and folktales from the region. Her article, The Smell of Water, a liquid witness to environmental change in the Amazon, can be found in our special water issue. And listeners can find this and other articles at www.gastronomica.org. I'm in Toronto, and Chanel joins us from Providence, Rhode Island. Chanel, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to the show. You have a fascinating background. You study 20th century French and Francophone literature, but also write about the Amazon. Can you tell
1: us about the connection for you? Of course. Thank you so much for having me today. So yes, it might seem very confusing that I work on the Amazon, but I am very much embedded in my research in French literature. But my work on the Amazon started in undergrad when I was at Florida State University. I had the honor to work under Juan Carlos Gareano, who's a professor of Spanish at Florida State University. And he's the director of a documentary film called El Rio, which is all about the water, uh, water systems in the Amazon. And so thanks to my work under him, I was introduced to the world of the Amazon, really, and fascinated by The folktales of that region and started to work more and more on these folktales what they mean analyzing them and through my work on the folktales this is how i started to think about waterways and their importance and then my work in french studies has always been on smell and smell studies is really the field in which i am working in and there was a moment where i started to see crossovers between my work in smell studies in french literature and then smell in waterways in the Amazon. And that's kind of how I started to think about smell in the water in the Amazon.
2: And how, how did you come to focus on smell? And it's, it's fascinating to me. And to me, smell is, is a remarkably late addition to the, the humanities toolkit um, and indeed to food studies. So
1: how smell? Yes, the, the field of smell studies, for example, is also a relatively new field. I mean, the term smell studies is something that has only come up in the last five years or so. But my work on smell began in undergrad, once again, at Florida State University. I worked under Aimée Boutin, who's a sound studies scholar. And I took courses on sound studies, thinking about sound. And through thinking about sound, I started to think about smell. So it's really, for me, all of the senses have always been important to my work. And I'm very much focused on sensory studies, perception. I've always been thinking about taste, sound, touch, all of the senses in my work. But slowly I became very much fascinated by smell. And it's just one of those senses that is so interesting. The more that you learn about it and the more that you learn how powerful the human nose is, for example, it's just such an enjoyable sense to, to study. And every day I'm learning more and more about what smell is and how the human brain Processes odors,
2: and you know, I think you're going to tell us through smell whole new ways of understanding envir- the environment and environmental activism. But before we get there, before we head to the Amazon, can we talk more about the smell of water? I I have a glass of water in front of me, and I've been swirling it and smelling it before we got on this morning, and I think it's a great opportunity to introduce, reintroduce listeners to their own noses. So. What is the smell of water?
1: That is a great question, and a very difficult question to answer, because it, it it forces us to ask, what is water supposed to smell like? Or what what does normal water smell like? What does drinking water smell like? And in fact... Water in various different cities smells different. It depends on the processing plant. It depends on the chemicals used in different treatments for, for the this water that we're drinking. And every waterway has its own sort of unique properties and therefore unique odors. So there wouldn't be one answer to what this water smell like. And in fact, smell is such a subjective, emotional, personal sense that every individual has a sort of different answer to what does this glass of water that i am drinking smell like it's something so so difficult to define and and something we don't think about that often either we just drink water without stopping to think about what is the smell of water what is it smelling like today
2: and you know that it gets me thinking you and i are both along a, a coastline of sorts i'm along the the lake ontario you're along the the ocean, and it does get me thinking about the different what you're what you're just saying gets me thinking about different ways in which we we sense the water around us, the water that comes from our tap, the water from the lake, the water from the ocean, and, and um, I'm wondering if there's a way to help people become conscious with this intervention. Is there a way that people can can actively smell the water around them? as they begin to think about your article.
1: Absolutely. I think there are ways for us to engage more fully with our senses and engage more fully with our noses, kind of trust our sensory perceptions, which is one of the big arguments that I make in our article, that we should trust our sensory perceptions. And there's a term that I coined called smelling slowly, which to me, to smell slowly means to smell in this slow, purposeful, and engaged manner to really connect with our environment, to really connect with our bodies. So it's something very bodily and engaged. And I think that's something we can all do when we're smelling the water around us, the spaces surrounding us, the smellscapes, the, the smells of the areas in which we live. There's a way for us to smell in this slow, very engaged and purposeful way to to notice our environment and that way be more able to notice shifts in our environment as well.
2: And, and and indeed to draw political conclusions from that too. So let's let's head then to to the Amazon. And in the first instance, can you tell us about the geography and the social geography of the Amazon in general and the Peruvian Amazon, which I think probably less familiar to many listeners. And then we'll get to talking about its smellscapes.
1: Of course. So the Amazon is located in South America. It's a big region, spans across eight different countries. These include Brazil, Bolivia, Ecuador, Colombia, Venezuela, Suriname, Guyana. And the Amazon is known as the world's largest rainforest. It's 20% of the world's freshwater So really a space of diverse flora and fauna and a space that has for a long time been under threat due to deforestation, illegal logging, illegal mining. So it's a space of contested moments and very important when we speak about climate change and environmental change because of all of these sort of industrial activities that are happening and destroying the environment in that region And for for me, what was most important in this region was the rivers. In the Amazon, there are over a thousand (laughs) different rivers. It's really the land of water, the land of rivers. And for many communities, these rivers are like roads. That's why in my article, I actually write water is life, water is life for this region. It's so important to all of these small communities that live along uh, the rivers, where many times... The the river is a faster route than going by road and even more reliable than, than roads. So it's a very green area with, with many rivers. And in the Peruvian Amazon, the region that I focused on is very much the capital of the Peruvian Amazon, which is the city of Iquitos in the Menas and Loreto province. And I focused on the Nanay River, which runs into the Amazon River. So the Amazon River and the Nanay River connect at the city of Iquitos, and there are all of these very small villages that live along the Nanay River.
2: Many of which have significant indigenous populations. Is that right?
1: Yes, absolutely. For example, the Shawi indigenous people are native to Peru, to the Papanaruma region, and... There's also the Cucama people that live in Peru. So many indigenous and non-indigenous riverine communities in this area.
2: Fantastic. Now now that we have the space in our mind, can you put the smell in our noses?
1: Yes. (laughs) So it's a very complex smellscape. And I think I would begin at the city which is a space that I did not expect to smell so terribly. And through my interviews, the smells of Iquitos were what were most surprising to me. I think when we think of the Amazon and the smells of this region, we think of the water, the trees, the flora and fauna of the space. And so the Amazon tends to have this very positive image and positive smell associations. But through my interviews, I saw a sort of darker side to the smellscape of this region and that darker side was very much linked to Iquitos, the city of Iquitos, which is a big port city, very industrial, and the city of Iquitos was associated with odors like cardboard, uh smoke, oil, petrol, gasoline, food scraps, trash. And so it's a, it's a smellscape that in the city smells very terribly and then these odors sort of start to spread out beyond the city of Iquitos and this is where it gets interesting it's that the smells are not smells can never be stopped there's no like border around odors they spread they spread and get picked up by the wind when water evaporates it picks up these odors and spreads them down the water even the water water is moving it carries these odors down to other communities and so the smellscape is always changing and sort of harming the odors that are noticed in the villages along the Nanai River, which is where I interviewed people in Anguilla, in Padre Cocha, and Bella Vista. All of these small communities are starting now to smell the oil and gasoline and cardboard coming from the city of Iquitos. So it's spreading down to these rural communities that didn't used to have to deal with those bad smells, these malodors.
2: So this is... This is enormously important, I think, for for all of us. Indeed, I think we can all pause for a moment, think about our own towns, our own where we live, and think about how you move from one odour world to another and how the odours might arrive in your neighbourhood at a certain moment of the day, disappear at others, or how you associate certain neighbourhoods with certain smells. But one of the things I, I think is so fascinating with this approach is the ways in which our conception that you're suggesting that, that we need to understand geography through smell. Whereas perhaps we've understood it maybe too much with, with sight, with vision.
1: Yes, exactly. I think understanding spaces and places and the line between spaces through smell really changes our view of the environment, our view of, the way that communities are impacted by the cities and the spaces surrounding them, if we engage through smell, it gives us a different view of life, a different view of the world. And it it really complexifies the boundaries between local rural communities and big cities. Where is that boundary? Where does one smell stop and begin? How are these smells spreading and how do we stop these smells from spreading what is the impact of smell pollution on small communities near big cities? What does this mean? How does it impact the mood, the wellness, the sense of security for people living near big cities and smelling these odors on a daily basis?
2: And so tell us then about the people who you interviewed. Did you have to draw them out on on smell or was smell really how they were making sense of their their riverine, waterly world?
1: Right. What was very surprising to me when I interviewed these four individuals, so I interviewed Iris Nogueira, Jose Pizango, Jose Paima, and Walter Arimuya, so four individuals from four different communities living around the Nanay River in the Peruvian Amazon. And what was very surprising was that smell was very much already on their mind. I barely had to really bring up that question because the second that I started to talk to them about local pollution, about water, about their relationship to the water next to which they lived, immediately smell came to their mind. And it was very interesting to see how how severe the impact of these smells is on these individuals. For example, Walter Arimuya was telling me how at night when the water is evaporating and the wind picks up, these bad smells are coming straight into his house. Straight into his bedroom and disturbing his sleep, and that's so serious. It's a very, it very much surprised me how much these malodors are are present, and how these individuals are viewing the waterway through the smell, especially since it's harming the fishing industry. And m- many of these individuals are fishermen and make their living through fishing. They they fish along the Nanai River, and then sell these fishes in the city of Iquitos. And so the fish quality is so important to them. But now that the fish smell different, the fish are smelling bad, the fish are picking up the bad smell of the water, this is very serious, and thus they're noticing it. And they're noticing that they're making less of a profit, that the fish aren't worth as much as they used to, they're not catching as many fish. The fish have a different taste, a different color. It's really impacting their, their living, their ability to make a living. So can we?
0: I'm, I
2: note that he described them as as malodors, as as bad smells, and that those eventually made their their way from the air to the fish themselves. What made them bad odors for him? Was it just that they 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 re- repulsed him naturally, or did he stop, pause, and say these are out of place? What makes something a bad smell? Maybe that's the the great big $64,000 question, right?
1: Right. This is a very difficult question because smells are very much a social construct. And of course, there's no such thing as good or bad smells. It really depends on personal experience with the scent. However, there is such thing as smells that naturally repulse us, that our body naturally recoils against, since smells very much linked to survival smell is registered in the part of the brain that processes emotions and memories. It's part of the limbic system, which is this ancestral part of our brain. And so there's very much a part of our bodies that naturally is repulsed against certain odors. And I think for individuals like Walter Arimuya, the bad smells are bad because they they aren't meant to be there. They weren't there before. And I think These individuals, they have lived along these riverways, these waterways their entire lives, and therefore have a point of comparison where they're able to say, when I was a child, this didn't smell this way. When I was a child, the water, we could just drink it without boiling it. The water was clean. The water had a nice smell to it. Today, there's a smell that I don't recognize. There's a smell that wasn't there when I was young. So there's a lot of nostalgia, really. In these interviews about waterways, of the way the water used to smell compared to how it smells today, a lot of these individuals were drawing these comparisons to their childhood, saying, when I was young, I didn't smell this. Things were fresh. We had a different relationship to water. And today we have to be careful. Today there are waterborne illnesses. We have to boil the water.
2: So it's this change over time, the change over generation, the nostalgia that helps make the nose, as you describe it, uh, a biosensor.
1: Yes, absolutely. There's, I think what's very important too in the Amazon is to note that sort of ancestral knowledge, that intergenerational knowledge of the environment that is passed down from generation to generation. So there's a lot of information about, even through the folktales of the Amazon, these sort of stories and myths that are shared about the space. These myths and stories carry information. And through those stories, through the tales that are carried from family to family, generation to generation, this is how we see that the smells are shifting. Because the these families have that, that knowledge from before where the water smelled different, and today it smells bad. Something has changed, something has gone wrong.
2: So in a way, you know, we often talk about oral cultures and the sharing of stories. But what you're suggesting is that we, we should also be thinking about um, smell cultures, right? And that, and that smells get passed down from generation to generation. Am yes. I going too far here?
1: <laughs> no, I love that. I love the idea of, of a smell culture. And I do think smells of a space are something so familial and very much contained in, in the stories passed from generation to generation. I think there is there are smells associated with the Amazon that Amazonian communities take pride in and promote and sort of share in their families. And so when those smells are no longer present, or even, for example, smells of certain fish or flower species... If the environment is changing, and those flowers are no longer growing in that area, those fish are no longer present in that area, those smells disappear, and that's a loss, and that's a loss in that family, in that generation.
2: So it's a it's a it's an olfactory extinction in a way, right? So th- what I think that means then is that um, well, I can ask for the folks that you were interviewing both activists and fisher fisher people the nose then is it an should we understand it as an unheralded undervalued in the in the broader world way to understand environmental change and degradation
1: absolutely it's absolutely an undervalued tool through which we can recognize environmental change and degradation i think the nose tends to not be trusted there's this sort of fear of trusting our sensory perceptions. Like, if someone says, the water smells bad. Why do you think that is? I think smell is something so personal and subjective that it's hard to trust. That we tend to think, well, that's just that one person's opinion. This isn't true. It's just their sort of subjective view of the smell that day. And smell is just so difficult to measure. Compared to sound, which we have the decibel system, we can measure sound. How do you measure smell? How do you measure and enval- evaluate a smell? For example, in the Peruvian Amazon, with the River Nanae, the Committee for the Defense of Water, they're trying to defend these waterways. I, I interviewed Professor Jose Manuyama, who is trying to work to kind of save the Nana River however he can. And authorities very much want scientific proof when it comes to pollution in waterways. And to say the water smells bad, there's the smell pollution, the question is always, is that enough proof? Or is that proof? Or how can smell be trusted? And I think authorities very much don't want to trust uh, smell as a source or as a indicator of environmental change, but for local communities, that's their first introduction to that pollution, it's through the smell. It's something so visceral and personal and direct and bodily that it needs to be it needs to be valued. It needs to be listened to. And that's very much one of my big arguments is that smell matters and it it ought to be something that authorities listen to when when speaking of pollution, especially pollution of waterways.
2: Let's take a short break here and then we'll be return.
1: This episode is supported by HRN business member Gustiamo, the place to buy the best Italian food online. Gustiamo imports the most authentic food from Italian farmers and food makers
0: dedicated to their food and traditions. Make Gustiamo your online store for ingredients and pantry staples from Italy. Visit G-U-S-T-I-A-M-O dot com. Gustiamo supports HRN's creative, educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place.
2: And we're back. This is Daniel Bender, your host, talking to Chanel Dupuis. This is Gastronomica on Heritage Radio Network. Chanel, before the break, you were encouraging us to to. Trust our noses and trust the smell and to see the smell as a source of real genuine politics. Indigenous people in the Peruvian Amazon, you suggest, remember their rivers smelling differently. Tell us how, what smells differently? Is it the river? Is it the fish? Is it the air? Is it everything?
1: I think that what smells differently is very much a combination of everything that you mentioned. It's first and foremost the water itself. It's picking up, literally picking up a cup of water from the Nanai River and smelling it, that the water itself smells different. The water cannot be drunk directly. It must be boiled before anyone can drink it. But it's also something very atmospheric. It's also in the air. It's getting picked up by the wind. It's no longer just in the water. I think the the smell... For example, the smell of trash, the smell of gasoline, these sort of industrial odors associated with Iquitos, with the city of Iquitos, they're spreading in the air and they're changing the very smell of the air and what is getting picked up by the wind. But then also the fish are smelling different. And and so the shifting smells are many. I I focus mostly on the shifting smell of water and the specificities of water, but beyond this... A lot of research could be done on the shifting smells of plants, of fish, of the air, and all the other ways that smells are impacting the environment beyond just the water, because water itself also cannot be contained, and the smell of the water is spreading in other ways as well.
2: So, Chanel, when when you were there and you were doing your interviews, did you go down to the water and take a cup of the water and smell it for yourself and then listen to your to your the, the local folks you were talking to? And, and then were they encouraging you to smell certain things that suggested contamination or environmental change?
1: So in December of 2020, unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, I was unable to go to the Peruvian Amazon as planned. And so these interviews were conducted virtually at a distance. So I wasn't able to go and smell the water myself. However, I think for my research, it worked out the best this way because I believe that my sensory perception of the water would not have been the same because I have no point of comparison from how the water used to smell. And I think my own sort of judgments and view of the water may have impacted the research versus the way that things were because of the pandemic, because I couldn't go and travel and be there directly. And I had to do these interviews virtually. I had to really trust and write from the perceptions of the community members, which was always my goal in the first place anyways. I wanted this to be the voice of Indigenous groups, the voice of River and communities, to give their perceptions voice and to show that their perceptions are not non-trivial, that they matter, that they are important, and that I believe them. So it was, it was interesting that I couldn't go and smell things myself. I would love to. It's definitely in my plans. I want to go and see how my perception of the smell of water would be different from these interviews. But I think the fact that four different people, and these are only four people that I interviewed, but beyond this, they were all talking to me about brothers, co-workers, grandfathers, children, other community members that had the same sensory perceptions. So these interviews could have gone beyond these four individuals. I could have kept going if I had more time, interviewed the grandmother, the father, the children, and so many other individuals, they were telling me had this the same feeling that this, the water smells different, the water smells bad, the fish are smelling bad, there's something changing in the smell of water in this location.
2: So what you're suggesting, what, I, what I'm hearing here, um, is that the r- smell has a powerful, powerful role in um, developing and encouraging and the proliferation of environmental activism at a local level, and indeed indigenous environmental activism in Amazonia, but may, but how does that then translate into into state action? You use the word trust, and I think that's really important.
1: Yeah, I think these local perceptions need to be listened to, and this is a a greater problem in much of the Amazon as well. It's listening to indigenous knowledge systems, listening to indigenous people to, to hear them out and see their suggestions for ways to live more sustainably with the environment because they know how to how to live amongst the environment in a way that is sustainable and very much are, are often not listened to or not part of the conversation. But I think people like Jose Manuyama, who's part of the Committee for the Defense of Water, are trying to change that narrative and turning to Indigenous communities to see what they have to say about the situation and what's happening. And things like illegal logging, illegal mining, those sort of practices tend to happen on Indigenous lands. And when Indigenous people call out those sort of practices. Sometimes the government doesn't step in in time or quick enough to dismantle those operations. So there needs to be more communication, of course, and more trust in sensory perceptions specifically, because I think that my work does show that smell is something so important and that our noses, we can trust them. They Our, our human nose can distinguish between a trillion olfactory stimuli a trillion, this is a lot. The nose is very strong and capable of noticing when something is off, when something is wrong in our environment. And that, to to, to put it in political terms, it would have to, co- groups such as the Committee for Defense of Water or other groups that are trying to, to change the situation as it is would have to... Allow sensory perceptions to be indicators of environmental change, would have to trust that that is a valuable way of of viewing the environment.
2: In other words, there has to be some kind of connection between a trust in in the nose as a biosensor as environmental activism engages with, but also needs to move beyond laboratory diagnosis partly because as you note that you might be able to what to measure for example the amount of contaminants fecal matter or or industrial pollutants in water in a lab you can measure the amount of mercury in a fish but you can't measure in a lab you can't measure the true Psychic, social, cultural damage of that pollution. And I want to read you one of the quotes that really, really stuck out to me in reading your wonderful piece. And you write, not only does water contamination harm the health of local communities, it also harms the presence of transformational beings, spiritual beings. This goes to the heart of environmental damage to social, cultural systems. Tell us more.
1: The changing shift of smell is not only harming the health of people living along these waterways, but it's also harming the presence of spiritual beings, transformational beings, such as the Yakumama. And so in the Amazon, and not only in the Peruvian Amazon, but in many parts of, of the Amazon, there are these traditional cosmovisions, ways of viewing the world where different beings
2: such as the Yakumama that you reference.
1: Yes, such as the Yakumama are these beans that link the human world to the natural world. And so transformational beans are just it's just a name for beans that change shape. They're shape shapeshifters, such as the Yakumama, which takes on a serpentine shape. It's like this giant serpent that is said to travel up and down the Amazon and Nanai rivers, the rivers of the Amazon. And the yakumama is said to carry with it an abundance of fish. And so beings such as the yakumama, the yaras, the renacos, even the pink dolphins are said to be transformational beings. All of these spiritual beings can be impacted by things such as bad smells. And so in the Amazonian cosmovisions, in this knowledge system, the yakumama, when it hears a loud sound when it smells something bad, when it sees a large cargo ship, when it, when it's blocked in any way, the Yakumama will leave, will leave an area. And when the Yakumama leaves a river, it takes with it all of the fish. And so we'll leave an area in scarcity, we'll leave an area without much left. And so what this means in other terms is that when there is pollution, there is the debt of spirits. When there is Smell pollution, there is the potential for spirits such as the Yakumama to go away. And this is a grave spiritual loss. We're talking about spirits, a way of viewing the world, dying.
2: I think that's of staggering importance. And I I think that this is a really, really powerful way of understanding the ways in which local people understand the depth and breadth and impact of, of... Environmental change of climate change of industrial environmental pollution in ways that go beyond the the parts per million, the quantifiable, the lab testable, and understands environmental degradation in um, in in sensory terms. Right.
1: Right. Exactly. It really it puts things into perspective when suddenly we're not just talking about water smelling bad we're talking about an entire spiritual system going away an entire way of viewing the world getting dismantled it's a big loss it's a spiritual loss for these communities when the way that they view these riverways the way that they view trees the way that they view this they really speak about reciprocity quite a lot in these folk folktales. It's important to have this reciprocal relationship with nature. And when that reciprocal relationship is no longer possible, it's a, it's a grave loss. It's worse than just illness. It's worse than just water being polluted with mercury and lead and chromium. It's the Yakumama being gone. This is something that it, we can't even conceptualize. It's something so big. It's something very grave. And that's something that I wanted to highlight in my article how important it is to understand the Amazon through these folktales, through these transformational beings, because they impact how local communities are interacting with those waterways as well.
2: And that really brings us to the concept of of slow smelling, um, this kind of mindful smelling as a concept. How does this, this idea of Smelling slowly or slow smelling transform environmentalism. How does it change the way we relate to food and water, to pollution?
1: Yeah, so I I coined two different terms, which they can get confusing, but smelling slowly and slow smelling. To me, slow smelling is a form of slow violence. So slow smelling is the way that smell pollution is a type of slow violence. It is slowly sort of creeping in on these smellscapes, slowly going uncontested. This is slow smelling.
2: The way we might get used to the smell in the air and just just it becomes naturalized because we haven't smelled it differently?
1: Exactly, exactly. Yes, it's the way that these uh, malodors are settling in and becoming these accepted parts of smellscapes. But then the way to resist that, the way to sort of undo and denounce those malodors is to smell slowly. And smelling slowly, for me, it's a type of resistance. It's a type of bodily resistance. And it's what Walter Arimuya is doing, for example, when he says, the water smells bad, the water smells different. It is that slow, purposeful, engaged way of smelling where there is potential for change. There is potential for resistance when the nose is trusted.
2: Chanel Dupuis asks us to smell the water in order to defend it. Thanks, Chanel, so much for joining me today. Join us next week on Gastronomica when Paula Johnson talks to Holly Browse on the uncertain future of New Mexico's famous chilies. She considers whether this heritage crop can adapt to water scarcity. Listeners can find Chanel's and other articles from Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, volume 22.4, in print and online at gastronomica.org.
1: The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.